and welcome to the Agri-Food Comscast. I'm Catherine Lynch and I head up Pinstone, a PR agency that specialises in serving clients operating in the agriculture food supply chain. Our podcast series explores the story behind the story, getting behind the scenes on how different organisations are adopting the raft of approaches in the communications toolbox to raise profile and get their message across. Today, we'll look at how the British Coffee Association is making a call out to influence government policy. But before that, our first two guests are aligned in their focus on raising professionalism in farming in different ways. I'll be speaking to Stephen Jacob, CEO of Basis, shortly. But first, I've got Stephanie Barclay from the Farm Safety Foundation with me. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Um, so as we speak, we're uh, only a couple of weeks away now from Farm Safety Week uh, that sits under your Yellow Wellies brand. Tell me just a bit about the Awareness Week, uh, what it's seeking to achieve and, and how it first came about, if you can. Yeah, I'm delighted to. Um, Farm Safety Week is an initiative that was set up by NFU Mutual, the insurance company, eight years ago now. Um, to start to raise awareness of the poor safety record in the industry. It's no news to anybody that farming has the poorest safety record of any occupation in the UK. It is 18 times the oil industry rate of fatal accidents. For something that accounts for 1% of the economy, it accounts for 20% of all workplace deaths. So the insurance company basically decided to create a week in the year where they would start to focus on Farm Safety Week. And actually their board decided at that point, um, after doing the first one, that they needed to do more. And actually that it wasn't, shouldn't just be one week focus every year. So the board put together a proposal to create an independent charity to look at farm safety 365 days of the year to start to drive better behaviours in the industry and to start to address that per safety record that farming has. So we were set up, um, as I said, as an independent charity, the Farm Safety Foundations. We created a logo based on a pair of wellies and we started to ask people who would fill your boots if something was to happen to you. And that's really how the Yellow Wellies uh, nickname came about. Um, so the 20th to the 24th of, of July, um, that's sort of the, the focus for uh, quite a lot of activity. What's the structure and, and how have you thought about, you know, really trying to get engagement through that, that week and, and take that opportunity? Yeah, so this week is, um, is different, obviously, given the, the situation that we all find ourselves in at the moment. However, the the most recent health and safety executive workplace fatal accidents report actually shows there's some green shoots. What we're doing is starting to work because last year there was a 63% decrease in the number of farm workers killed on farms. Mm. So last year there were 32 farm workers killed on British farms. This year, to coincide with 2020, there were 20 mm. farm workers killed. So it's a step in the right direction. It's 20 far too many, by the way, but it is a step in the right direction. It shows that farmers are taking safety seriously. And actually, that is our theme for this year. Mm. It's take safety seriously. Everybody knows the same four or five causes of fatal accidents and life-changing injuries every single year. 
we know it's falls from height. We know it's working with animals. We know it's working with uh, transport. The only thing that's changed in the last 60 years is the advent of a quad bike. The mm. quad bike being now part and parcel of everyday professional modern farming. Last year, five accidents in the industry were caused as a result of quad bike accidents. This year, the health and safety executive are going to release on the Monday for us of Farm Safety Week. They have started to bring forward their agriculture report, which usually gets published in October. Mm -hmm. They're bringing it forward for day one of the um, Farm Safety Week, which allows us to get focus, allows us to actually go out with people and say, you know, these are the reasons over the last year that people lost their lives. Devon, mm -hmm. two years ago, had um, five fatal accidents. When that information went out there as part of Farm Safety Week, Devon Young Farmers Club actually took it upon themselves that they wanted to get every single member of their um, of their team and actually every single member of Devon Young Farmers Club trained in farm safety. We were able to deliver that training to them in a real and relatable way. Their figures dropped from five to one wow. in a year because they took action. And that's yeah. what we're talking about. It's about encouraging people to use that information and to take action to drive that behaviour. Absolutely. Like you say, it's and there's all very well your PR objective is awareness, but it never is just awareness, is it? It's actually, you know, how is that going to, to shift behaviours? And, you know, very often these can be quite long term, almost generational even changes. But I love that example that it's almost an immediate. Yeah, you know, we got that statistic, you know, this relevant to farmers in in our region and and getting everyone one trained that's um that's a that's a brilliant tangible example so you've got the report so yeah monday is the report i mean every day has a different theme actually and this year we're, we're taking a pretty different approach to previous years on tuesday we're well, obviously we're going to address the elephant in the room which is coronavirus but we're also going to talk about what people are doing to support each other in the regions the good news stories the positive news stories because the issue is that farm safety and mental health are linked and the issue about coronavirus is the rural isolation lack of broadband the uncertainty surrounding um you know collection of milk collection of eggs all of those areas that have caused anguish and anxiety for farmers how are they dealing with that? How are the rural support charities dealing with an upsurge, if there is one, in calls and preparation for when the aftermath of COVID may hit the industry? Because it, at this moment in time, it isn't hitting them because farmers are used to being isolated. Mm. But the, the fact is, with no shows, with no uh, mart, and with no uh, apparent opportunity for them to just relax, after calving, lambing, silaging and now harvesting, you know, they need something that they can actually have some relief if that's not there. And coronavirus is no longer and social distancing restrictions have been eased. Then what happens to them when they suddenly get into agricultural bill issues and Brexit issues? The rural support charities are gearing themselves up for um, an upsurge in, in calls to them for whether it is financial or emotional support. Um, so we're looking to highlight that and what is available and actually how various organisations and various um, like the Young Farmers Clubs in certain areas, how they're actually supporting each other at this stage mm -hmm. and what they're doing to build that resilience. Wednesday, we're focusing on child safety, actually, because 
with the really tragic news that a two-year-old lost their lives um, in the last week um, mm -hmm. as a result of coming into contact with slurry. We know children are spending more time on farm at the moment because because of the skills. And then the, it's just ensuring that that complacency doesn't happen. Anyone losing their life on a farm is tragic, but there just seems to be something so much more poignant when there's such a young, innocent life involved. Mm -hmm. And farming is the only industry where children continue to lose their life in the workplace. In terms of what we try to do for that is we share stories um, ourselves and we share guidance and advice in a very real and relatable way to farmers. So we wrote um, a 16 page guide about key issues that parents do need to be aware of, you know, if their children are going to be on the farm. And it's really how do you create that strategy for ensuring your child is safe at all times? We send this out to the um, our partners in the various countries. We send out themes and then we invite them to get on board. For example, in Northern Ireland, the Health and Safety Executive and the Farm Safety Partnership have a competition that's running right throughout the, the summer. And it's a child poster competition. Okay. And it's based also based on various themes. So children are invited to send through their um, submission. And if they're lucky, they actually these get made into a calendar. Oh, that okay. is then there's 24,000 copies that go into every single farming family home. It's positive, isn't it? You know, yeah. a colouring competition and, you know, involving the kids. It's very powerful. Exactly. But it, it is a doom and gloom story, if you see what I mean. It is, it is. But it, it creates that conversation between parent and child. Thursday, we're focusing on technology because I think technology is starting to contribute really heavily to getting those messages out there and that improvement in behaviours. And we know it because we've changed our education programme to include virtual reality, which is such an exciting development for students who are taking their first steps into agriculture. They're actually seeing farm situations and hazard perception, same as you do when you're doing the driving test, but also there are agricultural colleges like Caffrey in Northern Ireland, and they have invested in simulators for teaching tractor driving as well. So mm. they're using that and, and it's that sort of lovely blended learning. But also there is a wealth, surprisingly enough, of apps out there mm. available to people to help them to farm safer. We did a call out to our 26,000 uh, social media followers to ask them, what are the farm safety apps that are helping you to, you know, every day? The results of that are going to be done throughout the day. And also what we'll do is we'll do, a sh we'll share a little tutorial about this is what this particular app does and that they're independent. So the results are um, from the audience. We didn't make them up. It's what they told us that they use. And then we're basically showing people, you know, what they do. Friday, we're looking at road safety. Yeah. So we're looking at um, best practice in terms of driving on roads. There's um, There's been an awful wave of distracted driving throughout this um, coronavirus lockdown. Um, there seems to be a lot more people speaking out against uh, mm. distracted driving and texting while you're driving or on the phone while you're behind the wheel of a you know a combine harvester or whatever you know so there's a lot of people that have been a little bit more vocal about that which is good to see because so we're going to talk about that we're also going to be talking about TikTok which is obviously this new um, short videos that are all done to get impact and get likes but a lot of them are focusing on um, really dangerous behaviors yeah. And it's just a matter of time before mm -hmm. this 
becomes a tragedy. The last thing we're going to do is we're, we're, we've teamed up with British Cycling. We've decided what we'll do is we wanted to let farmers know what um, cyclists can and can't do. For example, they're, they're riding to abreast. They're not doing that to annoy you. They're doing that because actually they're allowed to and they're encouraged to do so because it denotes the width of a car. Mm-hmm. And when you're overtaking them, you should be giving them the same distance as you would be giving a car that you're overtaking. So there are things like that that we want to educate farmers about. Also mm-hmm. thinking about how to make sure that people understand what they're doing if they're about to turn into a field and how to be aware of somebody that's coming in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And likewise, British Cycling are going to do the same. So that's the type of thing that we're going to be doing this year. So it's Brilliant. quite a quite a packed schedule. I love that you've got this structure and each day you've got a theme and that's giving other aligned organisations or you know or less aligned you don't think of the cyclist association as as being someone that farm safety week would necessarily interact with but because you've got a day that's really giving them a reason to um to take part and uh, and get involved and get that social interaction brilliant so have you have you actually got some goals as, in terms of outreach and do you know it's funny Catherine because we in the past I mean we've done very well in terms of for example you know press coverage mm-hmm. you know so if maybe in the past the first sort of year that we did it we've sort of gone from 30 pieces of press to last year when we we've achieved like 279 uh, press and that's tv interviews radio interviews online and in print and whilst you know it's nice to be able to sort of continue to improve that the goal really is those figures that get produced by the health and safety executive saying how many people lost their lives yeah Um, and that to me is the goal is continue to drive those down same with the life cha- life changing accidents as well you know so we can actually go back and say to sort of for example NFU mutual in terms of how many life changing accidents you know that were claimed how has this changed in the last 5 years and what we can see actually from those figures is that the number of life changing accidents is falling the right. number of life ending accidents is falling you know and that's what we're continually wanting to do yes we want to to improve in terms of our coverage we want members of the public to understand that farmers are key workers highlight the how important farmers are for putting food on our plates every day and how they should be respected and treated but what we want people to have is is an empathy for the industry and, and you find respect for the industry and obviously for farmers to to just as I said take safety seriously yeah well I think the week focus is is an absolutely brilliant way of really bringing this together and, and really creating a strong awareness um, and then you know going forward hopefully you can uh, develop that so huge thanks to Stephanie Barkley Farming is an industry we've all got a real affinity for here at Pinstone, so we'll be sure to be tuning in to Farm Safety Week that kicks off on Monday the 20th of July. Raising standards and pushing for professionalism in farming is something our next guest is all too familiar with. Stephen Jacob from Basis, welcome along. 
Good morning, Catherine. How are you? Good morning. Very good. Thank you. Um, so BASIS, of course, a, a very familiar name, uh, particularly at uh, grassroots farming level. But exactly what sort of levels of adoption has the organisation got in terms of training uh, and the certifications that, that you look after? We, we offer a whole range of training and certification, um, right from foundation level, from new entrants coming into the crop protection industry, up to advanced agronomic qualifications and certificates. Some of those certificates are recognised in statute by the Health and Safety Directorate, and we're an awarding body to actually um, quality assure that process. And we also get involved with plant nutrition, amenity, and increasingly over the, the past few years, we've been getting a lot more involved in land management, thinking about conservation, quality of soils, and the management of those soils. And that's certainly an area which we're going to be expanding quite a lot over the next few years. Um, and in addition to the certification and training, we continue managing professional registers for individuals in crop protection and pest management. And, and that's really looking at a continued professional development type schemes. And we also have an auditing service where we audit pesticide stores, uh, amenity services and lawn assured businesses as well. So obviously in recent months, farming has not been able to stop. Um, but what about from your perspective with the training and exams and everything that you've, you've had going on? Well, it's, it's been very interesting because um, effectively everything paused. When, when we got to March 23rd and we had to make that sort of fateful call to, to close the office, close the physical office, uh, the industry paused in some respects, but very quickly people got used to working remotely. Um, we were delighted that some of our basis approved trainers continued to, to offer some of their training online. And, and what we have noticed that even those who were not able to, perhaps they didn't have the facilities or, or the technology available to them, they effectively postponed their training until this autumn. We, we're very much expecting that things are going to start up again quite rapidly um, uh, in a few months' time. Actually, what BASIS has done, we, we took the opportunity to look at some of the courses that we deliver, such as the nominated storekeeper training, and we've managed to develop that module fully online, and we've piloted that with a few distributor companies within the industry, and that now has been delivered very successfully to industry, something that perhaps we wouldn't have thought about doing uh, a few months ago. Um, and so how have you actually been able to facilitate you know, a, a service go, going forward? Well, I always knew that 2020 was going to be the year that BASIS went digital. Um, we had a, a digital transformation project which we identified back in 2017 as uh, the Board of Trustees of BASIS identified the required need to, to start um, looking at digital services. So we were some way along the path to adopting more digital technology, but what the COVID or the pandemic did was it actually accelerated that programme. Um, I very much took a view quite quickly that if we weren't going to be able to continue along our traditional routes of assessing candidates and running courses, we, we had to accelerate this digital process. So some of the things we've done is we, um, we've adopted some software and this software, we can use it to individualate assessments. It's really quite powerful. It's, it sort of takes over your computer. It stops candidates from searching the internet. Um, it actually records and reviews the whole exam process. So as far as possible, it replicates the whole sort of classroom individualization process. We've also started conducting our vivas, the, the sort of face-to-face -face interview exams that we have, and we've started to do those on, on Microsoft Teams. And I can't believe how successful that's been. Uh, we had lots of rehearsals with our uh, exam chairs and with our examiners. Of course, they were spread throughout the United Kingdom and also with the candidates. And I think to date, we've actually had sort of seven cohorts of students go through online assessments and, and online vivas. 
and uh, it's something that perhaps we will continue to use in the future. Brilliant. I mean, it's it's good to know that you know everything has the the wheels have kept turning, and uh, you know everything's you know been able to uh, to a large extent sort of carry on and adopting the new software and everything else. But what's perhaps been most challenging um, about going digital, and and particularly when it's been accelerated as it has? I think we've all been thrown into a very unique position. Um, every business in the world, every individual, every part of society has gone through this sort of lockdown process and we've all adopted technology together uh, and in some ways that broke down a lot of the barriers to um, online video conferencing for example and in some ways it's been easier for us to sort of develop our digital agenda but, but there have been challenges uh, and one of the real challenges that we faced right at the start was how do we continue to quality assure our assessments to the standards that industry expects mm-hmm. And, and we worked very hard with um, our accreditor, which is Harper Adams University, and also the health and safety executive, the, the chemical regulations division, who um, also part of the statutory certificates which we offer, or they, they, they're behind the statutory certificates that we offer. So working with both those organisations, thinking about how we quality assure the processes has been key really to the success of the programme. And, and all the way through that, um, I'm incredibly proud of, of how my staff and, and how the basis approved trainers and everybody that we've been working with have pulled together to make this happen. Um, it's quite remarkable when, when people you know, want something to happen, they want it to work, and, and they've worked incredibly hard in, in really quite difficult circumstances to, to bring together what I think is quite a successful digital programme over the last few months. Brilliant, because you've had your your online classrooms and uh, you know and a number of those uh, those those initiatives and and I think particularly in the absence of events, you know that's obviously where Basis has uh, very much always had a, a core presence. So do you feel that you've been able to sort of overcome that? I think we've been able to to offer um, the industry CPD opportunities. So you're, you're you're quite right. I mean, we actually saw a reduction in what I would call traditional face-to-face CPD activity drop by 80% during March, April, and May. And we fast-tracked our, our basis classroom, which is effectively a suite of online um, learning activities which our members can access, and they can get continual professional development points for that towards their professional development records. And we're working with quite a few event organisers to put a lot more material onto that platform. And that, that will help people. Um, we're now seeing quite a few more people register events with us in the industry. But as you might imagine, most of those are webinars or, or they're online seminars in some form or other. And, and you know, that, that's an inevitable sort of impact, really, of the pandemic, that we've still got these social distancing measures and we're still not going to be able to, to meet in large numbers in the same way that we could do before. So, you know, you obviously haven't had that in-person sort of physical presence to, to talk to uh, your members. So how, how have you gone about approaching on the communications front with uh, with trainees and, and members? One thing we've learned, Catherine, is you, you can't over-communicate. Um, every time we think we've, we've got messages out there, we, we have to think about communicating the game. And um, social media has been very important to us. Uh, you know, we, we've got Jess who works internally in a, in a PR role for us. She's been keeping on top of the, the social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram uh, and Facebook as well. But particularly Twitter seems to be the one which has got the most traction for us. Um, like you, we, we've developed a podcast as well. We've had one episode out and we're, we're currently recording the second one. And that's been hugely successful. We, we never imagined how successful that would be, actually. But it's something that we will continue with. Brilliant. Basis E news bulletins, again, getting the message direct to our members has been really important and, and, and using the press as well as much as we can. 
but, but we've learned, and we, we always knew, to be honest with you, Catherine, but you, you can't do everything in-house, especially a small organisation like Basis. So, so having that sort of external expertise and, and having a, a good PR agency such as Pinstone involved has, has been really valuable to us. Brilliant. I mean, I think where you touch on there that, you know, there's there's never one one single channel that's uh, sort of the silver bullet and, and suddenly, you know, one press release and everyone's aware it, it just doesn't work like that. And uh, obviously social media and, and direct marketing and, uh, you know, events where you can have them, uh, etc. It all it all adds to that that wider the wider message that, you know, hopefully the, the message at, at some point goes in. Yes, yeah. Keep keep repeating it. Keep repeating the message. Get it out in as many ways as we can. And and I, I don't apologise for over communicating. Um, sometimes I feel that we are, but definitely we have to keep on getting the message out there because some of the changes that we've implemented, not just on the training side, but on the CPD side and on the auditing side as well, which have now our audits have gone remote as well. Um, it's keep on getting that that message there. And uh, I think with all the digital methods that we have of, of changing our business operations. It's, it's making sure that, that you know communication is key and, and appointments are key as well. Timeliness is very important. So that's something that we've been working hard on. So, so do you feel like, you know, obviously it's been big changes and, um, you know, digital has really dominated in recent months. Um, is some of that here to, to stay longer, longer term or will a lot revert back to how you were operating previously? I, I Absolutely. We're going to have a blended future. Um, we're going to take the the best of the digital and the best of the sort of more traditional methods that we had and, and blend them together. Um, we've learned so much over the last few months. I think we've increased the level of service that we're providing to industry massively over the last few months. And, and some of the, the areas are a vast improvement than what we had before. So there are real benefits, um, but also we, we talked a lot about communication, but there's also a lot of non-verbal communication that as people we, we rely on. And I don't think we realise how much of that non-verbal communication that takes place in a, in a normal conversation. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing some of our trainers going back to, to start putting dates in the diary for the autumn for traditional training events. And especially with subjects like agriculture and crop protection, which are so practical, you still need to get boots on the ground, get your boots muddy and get in there and start identifying pest, weeds and diseases. So that blended approach is very much the, the way I think we're going to go, Catherine. Yeah, and then let, let's hope so. I think uh, some of us have all suffered Zoom fatigue, as I think <laughs> it's, uh, it's come to be known. So, uh, yeah, they're all for uh, blending approaches going going forward. Uh, thanks ever so much, Stephen. Great to, great to chat. So now we come on to a topic that's a challenge for many smaller businesses, that of finding a voice to impact government decision-making. It's clear that the pandemic has painfully impacted so many sectors, and of course, hospitality is one of those. But the British Coffee Association has identified a squeezed middle, as they describe it, that's been somewhat overlooked in recent government measures to protect those affected. Paul Rook is Chief Executive of the British Coffee Association, and he joins me now. Welcome, Paul. Hello. Hi. Um, so just to give us a bit of background, um, who does the British Coffee Association represent? We represent the, the, the entire uh, part of the, of the UK coffee industry. So that stretches from those companies who are importing green coffee or, or, or processed coffee from the origin countries, which are probably uh, Central South America, um, parts of Africa, etc., into the UK. Companies that are that are storing it, and obviously storing and maintaining the inventory is a good, uh, an important part of the industry. Then through to those companies who are roasting it, 
and onto retail. So whether you're buying coffee through the supermarket in, in instant form or, or in bags of uh, ground or, or whole beans, or whether you're buying it through some of the, the UK high street chains, um, we're sort of trying to represent the whole of, of that industry. So um, you've come up with this term, the, the squeezed middle, uh, interesting uh, terminology there. But tell me what's the, the background to that sort of sector that you've identified and uh, the background to, uh, to this report that, that you've been developing? Well, it really comes about from the discussions that we've been having as part of, the, of a wider federation, FDF Roundtable, um, which has been meeting virtually twice a week since the, the end of March to talk about the virus and particular issues uh, that, that industry needs to deal with. And there are probably, on some occasions, over 50 organisations that, that are essentially sitting around that virtual table. And we've done one piece of work looking at recovery um, slightly earlier in the process. But as we went on, we were feeling that, you know, we were we were probably missing a small element, and that element was, was, was those companies that are supplying into the hospitality uh, chain. Uh, so it's not specific to, to coffee at all. And one of the other organisations that quickly latched onto this was the British Frozen Food Federation, who obviously within their membership have quite a number of, of, of food service companies. And, and we had this common element of membership that had suddenly found that, you know, up to 95% of their uh, customer base had literally disappeared overnight with the, the sort of the shutdown in hospitality and, and the out-of-home sector. So we started to talk about what was happening in, in that sector, what what support was being given to that sector, whether it was business rates, whether it was uh, grants, and really looking then at whether equivalent support was being offered to to our members in, in this, what we term the, the squeeze middle. And really, it, the one wasn't any comparable support being given. Um, a, a lot of the what the government was putting forward, furlough apart, we can probably touch on furlough again. But apart from that, we were looking largely at loans. And you know, as, as with many associations, we have a large percentage of, of small and medium-sized businesses. And the view from the majority of them was, you know, they didn't want to take on additional debt recognising there was a small interest-free period, but after that, they would be paying interest on it. And these are, these are businesses that are fundamentally sound. It's just that, as I said, their you know, big chunks of their customer base disappeared overnight. Now, some were able to switch into the, into the sort of the retail sector and, and take advantage of the, uh, the uptake in, in demand there. Some have been able to switch into online, but a chunk of them simply don't have that uh, that flexibility to move in, in that direction. So in, in terms of the, um, you know, how really you were going to influence the uh, the government, I mean, there's a, obviously, they're going to have a lot of different bodies, organisations and all sorts, you know, with, with grievances and whatever at the, at the moment. But you took this sort of collaborative approach and, you know, what, what's the shape of that and how did that sort of, come up with this let's form a, hey, a report and then how you actually worked on getting that that message about the report and what you were calling for uh in front of the those that count really well we once we'd identified the the sort of the need uh, from, from the round table the, the, the 
we decided that a, a small group would, would go away and work on it. And, and, and really, it was it was free to anybody around the round table to sort of join in, and indeed organisations that weren't sitting around that table. But a small group of us, sort of five or six organisations, went away, and, and with the sort of the support of FDF, we we sort of worked on on various drafts. We looked at at, at what surveys members organisations had done, so what information had been flowing in from members. We took the you know the the conversations that we'd all had with our members and started to look at what what were members looking for, and and we started to identify areas where we felt you know the government could help. And, and, and early on, we were really trying to focus on targeted bits of, of help. So we weren't talking about, you know, government writing a blank check. We were talking about, you know, opportunities, for example, to extend the, the relaxation of business rates from, from the high street through to, to this squeeze middle, which we recognised could be done within the existing legislation. Uh, we were looking at the, the impact that uh, trade credit insurance was having on the industry and, and some of the some of the the, the the pressures that were coming on that particular industry so we were starting to see credit insurance being withdrawn or, or, or certainly the cover reduced so that group started to to sort of pull together some thoughts and ideas and then we were sharing them on a regular basis back with the the sort of the wider round table to such a point that we, we ended up with a with a document and then we invited really any organization that felt they they had similar concerns to to sort of signal their support and we had over 20 of the organizations that did so as i say including some that weren't round the round table but had heard of what we were trying to do and, and you know and felt they could support some of the the asks that we were making of government Mm. And and I guess that collaborative approach really adds adds power to to your voice. And you know, it's not just one single body that's asking for something. It's a collective, and uh, and therefore you're representing so much a, more a bigger part of the economy. I guess. I think food food and drink well agriculture and food and drink manufacturing is is our biggest manufacturing sector in the UK. And employs you know a great number of people but a lot of the associations and, and and i would probably include coffee in that are relatively small within that sort of bigger picture and and we don't on our own necessarily all have the resource and the ability to outreach into the into all of government that, that we do as a collective body and certainly under the under the sort of the the fdf umbrella and and so really this collaborative approach i think is is the ideal way for, for the smaller organizations that have common views to work together to identify this this sort of common agenda and, and put together some fairly strong arguments and then we then have the ability all of us to sort of take that document back into our own areas of, uh, of work and, and to our own membership and to encourage them to to use the document and that's that's the process that we've been in in the last few weeks we've, we've all been encouraging members to share the document, uh, whether that's on social media, to to extend it out to to their local MPs and to you know to where they have a relationship there, and to talk to people about what we're trying to to sort of get to, you know, and, and, and one example would be the furlough scheme, and, and that's been an extremely valuable part of the government's response to to the whole uh, COVID pandemic, but clearly the the timescales that we have at the moment are probably not going to fit. The, the restart of, of the hospitality sector. So the encouragement is to is to sort of focus on those areas where you know furlough may be needed for for an additional period of time. 
and it, you know, it's interesting. In the last few days, I've seen other organisations that have been writing in very similar terms. You know, and we know we've had some some, some resonance in, in the report. We know that that certainly um, some of the senior members within the Labour Party have, have been given the report, and I think have, have quite welcomed some of the some of the, the the points that we've been trying to make, and, and hopefully we'll take those up. And you know, we're we're now waiting with with a certain amount of interest for the Chancellor's statement next week on on some of these areas to see whether you know they have gained any ground. Yeah, I mean that was that was really my last question, really, as to uh, what what the results are or what you sort of hope to see. But you know, presumably, if you're getting some some good traction with um, the outreach that's coming through all the individual companies that are, are shouting about the the report and and what you're you're seeking for, hopefully that uh, uh, that'll help you get your uh, your message across. Well, I mean, that's the hope. As I say, you know, we're not we're not looking for for what we think is something that's unrealistic. It is. It is very targeted, and it's it's trying to sort of impress on on government that we have here businesses that are you know fundamentally sound. There's nothing wrong with them. It's it's simply this you know, this this completely unprecedented demolition to some extent of, of their customer base, and and you know the recognition that 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 demand does not come back all in one go. It's you know for certain parts of hospitality, we know that it's going to be a gradual process. We know part of that is. It's limited to to how people are allowed to open. You know, part of it will be the you know the the understandable nervousness that we all have as individuals as to how we re-engage with with pubs, with restaurants, with hotels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we know that that's going to be a long period, and it's how government tailors down that report and, and fills it down as industry is able to, to pick up more and more of the, the sort of the operating costs, the you know the, the costs of, of employment, etc. And a number of those things, hopefully, will you know will be recognised by by the the chancellor, who you know until now I think has has proved very sort of willing to listen to people and to to sort of have or to to bring adaptation into into some of the sort of the packages that have that have been put forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, as I say, we're you know we're, we're hoping that we'll see something in the in the days ahead. Well, fingers crossed. I mean, I think it was interesting how, you know, you mentioned that actually you're trying to present solutions that are within an existing legislative framework. You're not asking to wheels to be entirely reinvented. And and I guess something that, you know, sort of fits and can be done relatively easily is, you know, is more likely to get adopted than, you know, something that needs uh, starting from scratch. Well, that's our hope. And I mean, you know, I think we with taking credit risk insurance as an example, we felt that actually, you know, some of the money that has been offered in in, in loans as, as part of the original package is, is actually going to help business more if it's if it's refocused into maintaining confidence in through the sort of the insurance scheme, maintaining sort of confidence in terms of companies' abilities to pay. Because we are aware that we've had instances where, you know, companies have been essentially stopped from trading because of the demands that have been placed on them in terms of sort of settling bills when some of their customers have actually felt that they had a you know a reasonable repayment sort of, uh, package in place so so the credit risk i think is is one where it's sort of crucial to maintain that that level of cover that level of confidence that industry has and allow those commercial businesses to sort of trade their way back out of the sort of the challenge that we've all been through because you know essentially once the high street opens yeah it needs a working supply chain all the way through 
do to sort of you know resupply and continue to provide the goods that you know we as customers are all looking for. Absolutely, yeah. We'll be all be very upset if the uh, the coffee shops open and uh, actually there's you know there's there's no milk or there's no <laughs> no coffee beans. Um, that would be I think yeah, because I mean for, for most of these industries, you know, it takes a week or two to sort of build these things back up. So it's all about just making sure that 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 chain is there, is starting to operate, and then is back delivering. You know, the, because all of the raw materials are are essentially there it's just a matter of that that chain beginning to to kick in and it can't all kick in on day one yeah yeah no absolutely well thank you very much for that overview paul that's really interesting i think uh, there's a lot of us that don't really see beyond you know the the end product very often of uh, you know the the coffee and don't really think too much about the supply chain uh, behind it so um you know that uh, really good insight and uh, obviously it is serious times at the moment and you know those businesses being under under pressure so uh, so i hope the uh, report gets the attention and you know the the businesses will all all come out thriving out the other other side fingers crossed uh, we, we certainly hope so indeed so that brings this episode to a close i'd like to thank our guests stephanie barkley stephen jacob and paul rook we'll be back again in a fortnight's time but meanwhile you can subscribe from the app store spotify and all of the major podcast channels thanks for listening I'm Catherine Lynch.